0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: hey hey this is beer sessions radio and i recorded a special show last year with kevin zielinski of easy orchards out in oregon tune in for what's coming up next Hey, Hey, welcome to beer sessions radio on the heritage radio network this is another special breakfast cider edition We're recording live at Jimmy's number 43 in the East Village. This is June 2015. Uh, Thanks to our in-studio guests, Kay Michaels and Kay Howard, the duo from United States of Cider and at Hello Cider on Twitter. You can check with us at at beer underscore sessions on the Heritage Radio Network. We've got a special guest. He's here to do a dinner tonight at Wasail in the Lower East Side, uh, Oregon cider maker Kevin Zielinski of Easy Orchards. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we were just talking. Um, just tell us how you got started. You, know, you said your family had an orchard. Tell us, right. us about the
3: backstory. Okay, I grew up in the, on the family farm in the orchard business, and we've been in the Willamette Valley in Oregon for goodness from one side of the family since about 1850, and from another side of the family, we've been in the orcharding business since about 29. So,
4: What cider should we
2: start with? (laughs) Yeah, we're jumping into it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, people are thirsty, so let's start. Um, I would suggest we start with the Roman Beauty. So let's pop some of the Roman Beauty open. Now, Roman Beauty is a cider that is made from an heirloom North American variety that has lost prominence in the market. And fortunately, I've found another opportunity for the apple, so I'm able to keep that orchard going, which is important to me. Um... Because it's a wonderful apple and it's found a new life in this cider so this is kind of a throwback a um, <clears throat> excuse me a pre-prohibition style cider um, low ABV very sessionable
2: let's go back to so your family was your family, has, your family Cheers. was Cheers. Had an
3: orchard. you've been in the Willamette Valley right, right, time. right. so we um, in 1929 uh, my grandfather growing up on um, next door to the farm that um, I live on now um, he went into the orcharding business, started a brand called Easy Orchards. His name was Edward Valentine Zelensky. So he started Easy Orchards in 29, right as the depression was hitting. He got into deep water and worked hard and survived. And that was his first orcharding experience because the farm that he purchased had fruit trees on it. Um, most of these trees were from the World War I era. Prunes and apples and started farming other crops like strawberries. So since that time, the through his tenure on the farm, my father's and now my two brothers and myself, Mark, John, and Kevin, operate a farm that we've expanded that is principally growing apples, pears, peaches, and hazelnuts. All, you know, hazelnuts come from the Lama Valley very easily, but people aren't as familiar with the apples and pears from that region. So then the next opportunity for me in my trade was to figure out other ways to make a living with apples and so one of them um, developed into the cider project um, but primarily it was my interest in fermenting through um, fermenting um, Pinot Noir specifically because we live in a wonderful area for sourcing grapes that I came towards a winemaking friend who offered me the scion for my first bittersweet French apple varieties that I put in the ground in 2000 and so my first commercial cider came out in 2009 after I was able to develop trees that were, had harvestable fruit and enough volume to go to trade, licensed, and so I released in 2010 my first vintage from the 2009 crop.
2: So you, you grew up working in orchards? Yes. Working on the farm?
3: Yes, correct. Um, after school, in the summer, you know, there's something to do on the farm year-round, and um, the family had a... A good habit of keeping people busy on the farm, so you learn just about everything. (laughs) What are some of the things that you do when you have an orchard? Orchard practices involve one, you know, the caring for the mature orchard and younger trees, so needing different types of care and technique. But from if we'll start with the seasons, um, we'll start in the winter perhaps, where you've got trees that are you know, um, defoliated and you're caring for those trees by pruning them. And actually the most expansive job in the orchard is, or takes the largest amount of time is the pruning season. And it's actually a great opportunity to keep, um, a crew of people busy for a longer period of time. Pruning rolls into bloom season, which brings with it following bloom season, you know, there's orchard management that you do, cleaning the brush out, managing orchard care after the pruning season, and soon after bloom season, you've got fruit on the tree, maybe olive size, small olive size, and we'll start hand thinning. So the pruning's a manual job. But hand thinning is a manual job where we're separating fruit on the tree so we don't have clusters of too many fruit that are sitting too tight together and they start pushing each other off as they grow, or the other consequence is you don't get enough size on the fruit for fresh you know, market sales. That keeps the crew busy, and then our earliest crop to harvest is peaches. Peaches start coming off the orchard in late June, usually early July. So then we're picking peaches. Um, peaches are delightful. <laughs> I think they're a wonderful fruit. I don't make a fermented product out of them, but they're a nice, small season on the farm. From that, we go into the harvest of pears, some summer apples, fall apples, then into packing and shipping, and then we're back to pruning again.
2: Well, again, Kay, so tell us what, what you know about easy, Because I remember last year, Crystal Hot was talking about The west coast ciders that we don't really know about and this this is one that's really doing something different right
4: absolutely I think we discovered them about two years ago and we're very curious because the uh, first ciders you were making were in a French style and it was interesting to think about Oregon cider makers exploring the French tradition but with Northwest fruit
3: well, it was northwest fruit, but it was all French fruit that I was using at that time.
4: But grown in the Northwest.
3: Yes, but grown in the northwest. So that was that was unusual. Yeah, and I was fortunate to have fruit varieties provided me that weren't readily accessible.
4: What apples were you using in that first?
3: Okay, so the first vintage that came out, and still most of the vintage, of the varieties are still in the French style that I make. The seed is was um, domains. Um, Muscadet de Depp, Saint-Martin, Champagne-Renet, uh, let's see, the next one, I'm going in maturity, as they mature through the orchard, Duzmon, Marie-Ménard, uh, Muscadet de Lens, and Muscadet de Bernay.
4: All such great names.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and most of those are, are bittersweets. Uh, Champagne-Renet is an acid fruit, yeah. beautiful fruit, very clear-skinned fruit, but it's a small amount of the blend, because this is very low acid, higher tannin-structured fruit that I use for the cider.
5: And is that why you chose those, and how did you initially find out about this you know, these French fruits, and why were you drawn to that style?
3: Well, I've been very fortunate at times in my life, and this was a friendship through winemaking, um, and this man, um, who was a winemaker in the valley had a strong interest in making cider, and he had curated these varieties, up to about 12 varieties from another orchard in the valley that had never really been used for cider production and had been around probably for 20 years. The orchard was being removed, and he salvaged some of the scion wood and had grafted it onto trees in his yard. So he asked me to grow some of these varieties so he could you know, venture into cider making. And it wasn't long after I had budded the trees in 2000 that um, he took a job at another winery and in Washington was no longer going to pursue this. I have an acre's worth of trees that started to produce and I started experimenting with making cider. So, but I was very fortunate to have this person um, offer me a collection that had somewhere along the line. And I don't know who put this original, this collection from and I don't know how it arrived where it did, if it was... You know, from some other collection, but it is a, for me, a fabulous collection of French apple varieties.
4: That's a wonderful story of the through line of these apples finding yeah. The, yeah. the right place to be to become cider finely.
3: Right, the boat landed in a good place for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
5: but it is a little bit, you know, I find um, we talk to a lot of cider makers who, there are always these little apple mysteries. They sort of discover these trees somewhere and then just try and Lost sort of or of forgotten or. Yeah, pieced together un- un- the mystery, it. yeah.
3: Right. I, well, I, I love your ciders. You know, that's the first time I've ever tried them. Oh well, fabulous! <laughs> You'll notice uh, I won't talk about the ciders too much, but oh no, let's... except for you know the first one we've tasted here, the Roman Beauty, and this is consistent with all of the ciders that I produce. Is there's the French methodology, method ancestral, so it's an uninoculated inoculated ferment. the The most important part of this is the fruit itself, and my intention is to bring the Character of the fruit to the finished product. That's why I have a spontaneous ferment. I've never used a yeast yet in all my years of fermenting wines or cider. So I don't have anything else affecting the flavors. At least in my opinion, I think I'm bringing the opportunity of the apple to the forefront or the pear as much as possible. And then this somewhat creamy finish comes from the finished part of the product. This is a cider that is fermented slow and cold, it's finished in the bottle through a process called Pétalante Natural. So it is not a completed finish when it goes in the bottle. It's still in primary, but in the very late stages, very repressed yeast um, viability. So it finishes in the bottle, and this is where we develop this very fine mousse, this very small bubble. It stays well absorbed. And then in that bottle conditioning period, it takes months. It's usually about eight months to a year before my bottle comes to the shelf after first press. Um, there's also a creaminess that develops in the palate and on the texture. But that very small, well-absorbed bubble stays on the palate longer. So when it's transitioned through the experience, you still have a lightness that comes from the cider, from that small bubble that stays absorbed better in the cider. The larger the bubble, the faster it explodes. You know,
2: Kevin, you talked about you were drawn to the French fruits. Yes. You know, When I first was drinking cider, I would have a DuPont from Normandy, mm-hmm. You know whether is it just the fruit or is it are there techniques that would differentiate you know French style ciders from English style ciders for example?
3: Uh, There are some techniques um, or methodologies that are different. Some of that is um, in how the orchards are managed. Uh, I can't speak real accurately about the differences. Um, I haven't spent enough time in the UK or in France to say but what I do understand is that in both instances for a true farm oriented, orchard orientated cider the trees are allowed to be have repressed growth so that you have low nitrogen in the fruit and low nitrogen allows a slow steady ferment slow steady ferments give you the ability to retain more of the natural fruit aromatic instead of getting a lot of co2 scrubbing through an aggressive fast ferment now I don't know how common yeast inoculations are in the UK, but it's quite common in France among this style of cider maker to not use any yeast inoculation. So the fruit difference, um, there's probably more differences in the type of fruit where some French producers predominantly are using bitter sweets and a small amount of acid fruit. It isn't uncommon in the UK um, to have ciders with a higher acid level more of a balance between acid and tannin instead of leaning so heavily on tannin or a big presence of both acid and tannin in the cider
2: you know, if, I, if I were starting out and I, you know like I have some friends in the city that are making cider and they mm-hmm. go upstate and they get apples or they get juice I mean what, what what are basics that I should know also knowing that I don't really know my fruit and I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not raising the apples you know what are right. the basics I should know if I was
3: getting into it? If you were going to be purchasing fruit to, to yeah, produce a cider yourself. to be a home cider maker. Right. Um, first thing I would do is do a little bit of self-education about apple varieties. Um, you may have... So people will talk to me sometimes about this very subject, and they're looking for a variety they've read about that you can't find, and that's discouraging. So you may want to do a little bit of research into what cultivars are grown in a region that is within your access. Um And it's unfortunate, but you'll find a lot of culinary fruit that isn't exactly what's desirable for making cider because it doesn't contain the tannins. You can find plenty of acid fruit, but so often that fruit is harvested at a maturity, so it's a firm, crispy fruit. And you haven't really matured that fruit for a cider-making optimal fruit. So some of the aromatics may not be as developed, and some of the acids may be harder. But see what's available. For instance, if you're going into, you know, upper state New York and you're looking for, like, a Northern Spy or a Wine Sap, a Newton Pippin, you know, varieties like this. These are good, you know, domestic cider-making apples. Um, Macintosh, I've never worked with it, but I've heard that it's a good cider apple. Jonathan is a good cider apple. But all these fruit need to be, you know, managed properly for making cider um, to get the best opportunity out of the fruit for that purpose instead of this apple is really crunchy and hard but it needs a little more time on the tree so what, what happens what do you mean by time on the tree is it, a little more maturity but what what is that
2: how does that translate so from crispy f- fruit eating fruit style what's
3: the difference when you talk what's about maturity yeah, right what so, it, so what's happening is as really the fruit time. just not unlike you know watermelon or other fruit if you let it you know mature a little more on the vine on the tree one, you're producing some more sugars. Two, the um, composition of the fruit, um, cell structure, the juice content. You may even start to dry out the fruit some if it's you know, getting really ripe. You don't want it to be so ripe that you've got mush. But, you know, riper, firm ripe fruit, you'll get more aromatics. Usually you'll get a lot more aromatics. And I believe in my experience, and I don't have tables of you know, analysis, but on fruit that carries more acid, the acids are softer. They're right there, but they're not hard acids. So, for instance, the cider I just poured here a few minutes ago, the Hawkhouse House Cider, is a North American-style cider. Hawkhouse House is named after the American kestrel hawks that live in the orchard. We have a hawk box in the orchard, and they um, cruise the orchard. They spend more time there than any of us, so the cider is named after them. And this is made predominantly with Jonathan, um, a North American heirloom apple variety. Um, the orchard is managed for the purpose of making cider. Both sweet cider for our fresh produce sales and through our um, farm market and predominantly for fermenting. And this fruit, when I walk into the orchard as I'm letting that fruit go past the stage, I would harvest it for you know fresh sales because there's very little opportunity for the Jonathan in the market anymore as a fresh consumption apple because the current profile of apple is it needs to be crunchy. And Jonathan is not a crunchy apple. But it has great aromatics, really nice apple. It's a beautiful apple. Most
5: so, ciders that report, but you, the aromatics come through in the cider. Too. Really they're beautiful, amazing. like right Thank off. Thank you. Bat. Yeah, and they're distinctly different. The two. The, the
3: two was yeah, well. well, and that's yeah. um, apples have their own personalities, mm-hmm. and that's what my goal is, and so my intention is to bring that to the finished cider. So Jonathan Orchard, as that fruit comes to, you know, maybe we're only talking another 10 days later in harvest, maybe seven days, maybe two weeks. One, you don't want all the fruit hitting the ground. You don't want it spoiling. And you want to harvest it in a time that it's not the nastiest weather of the fall. So, um, but you can start to notice the aromatics as you walk into the orchard. You know, it's like, whoa, it's a warm afternoon. It's like, now this fruit's getting near the point I want it. You know, and then, then then you're starting to understand what it is you're gonna to bring to the cider.
1: It's That's awesome.
3: Happy. Sorry about that. We're gonna take a short break, we'll be back in a few minutes on your Simpsons ready.
1: In 1996, L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
2: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider edition of Beer Sessions Radio. We're recording at Jimmy's number 43 in June 2015. Our special guest, Oregon cider maker Kevin Zielinski of Easy Orchards with Kay Michaels and Gay Howard of the United States of Cider. So we're drinking some ciders, talking about cider, and it's about, not that, that early. It's like 10.30 in the morning. So trying to show that you can drink cider as part of a healthy lifestyle. Okay, you, you got a question for Kevin.
5: Oh, yeah, because you were talking about walking into the uh, orchard and you, you start to, to smell the fruit, and I was just wondering, is that one of the tools you use uh, to know, like, when are we ready to harvest this? Uh, because that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people really think about that in the process of you know farming. Right. Um, How does
3: uh, my
4: fruit smell today? Yeah. yeah well, it's uh,
3: the ability I have to, living on the farm, to you know be out, in the environment, you notice things consciously or subconsciously, and they start to send triggers to you. but you know, I have many years of experience on the farm too, so so many things that i uh, i don 't consciously recognize are happening mm-hmm. you know whether it 's looking at the management of the orchard floor, or looking at the tree or the tree health or how the you know how it's the weather 's behaving today all those things make a difference so yeah, it does make a, a It allows me a lot of relationship with fruit prior to fermentation. And that's, in my opinion, um, very important. And I'm not trying to do anything more than make a cider from fruit that we grow um, in what I would consider to be the most satisfying and honest way for my intentions as a cider maker. And each time I get to do that, it may give me a new experience and it may throw me a curveball too. You know?
5: Yeah, that's something that I I really appreciate about that type of process, though, is you're not trying to make a cider on schedule. I mean, we are somewhat in terms of seasonality, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, you know, so much of the, the good food we produce and enjoy is really about cultivating that right relationship and knowing. Knowing your product and knowing your, your trees in this right. case, or you know whatever it might be, if you're a cheesemaker, knowing your animals and understanding the milk and um, the seasonality of it, and we're not just you're not just trying to force something into a profile. You're taking it and letting it be and getting it to the point where it can be the best it is, um, and and you know translating it like you said, you want the apple to shine through. And yes. all these these three siders we've had are, are really distinct and. Um, and really appley and but they all have these different properties and beautiful aromatics and I think that's a, a tribute to you letting the orchard be what it wants to be
3: thank you thank you it, it is um, a, a happiness I find in, mm-hmm. in finding the apples opportunity mm-hmm. this way mm-hmm. you know and I'll be very honest I enjoy fermented beverages I enjoy wine I enjoy cider and so of
5: people who don't <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, then, okay, yeah. why don't you do the
2: cheese minute? I know you, you brought some cheeses. Oh, wanna, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll get those ready and uh, we'll, we'll try them together. So, Kevin, what, what about uh, cider and food or cider and cheese? You know, do you have any favorites or things that you serve on at the, at the... Is it an orchard or is it a farm? What do you call your place?
3: It's an orchard. And we also have a farm market uh, that is operated uh, year-round on the property. We're outside of the municipal area, but we have access to the mid valley population of the Willamette Valley. So, at we we do sell some locally made cheeses, and we also sell a full line of fruits and vegetables at our produce market. So,
2: if I come out and you're going to invite me out to visit, yes, I am. If I come out and (laughs) we have a
3: nice little orchard lunch, right? What what would be a, a a lunch that you would pick? Well, I'll I'll harken back to what you said about 10.30 in the morning. Um, It is okay to drink cider first thing in the morning. And and if I were to take... um, We're going to pour this next, the um, 2012 Cider Dry. This cider is um, the French-style cider. And so I'm hungry, and it's, you know, mid-morning. Not that I'm coming in to eat mid-morning. However, this cider with a scramble or an omelet of... um, like a leek cut into it and shove cheese and just light and easy and then you've got that a little bit of dryness of the shove cheese the leek perking it up and a nice soft egg texture with this with the there's big tan instruction. Sure
0: thank you
5: <laughs> speaking of which mm-hmm. there's one right there
3: mm-hmm. that beautiful cheese well, that's like
2: the orchard life that that
3: yeah. Talking about. Well, I'll usually be eating breakfast at about lunchtime because I'll go out early and then I'll finally get hungry and then I'll come in and yeah, uh, you know, it's one of the benefits of living where you work. When it's time to eat lunch, I can go to my own kitchen. You know, it's wonderful and it's flexible in that way. When when I'm able to, I will. So, uh, in regards to how food goes with cider cheese, without a doubt goes with cider, and, and people that I have spoken to in the last year have taken much greater notice of the opportunity that cider has with cheese. And I think part of some of that is because we're reluctant to make changes, and then you give people, someone an opportunity to experience something in the trade, and they're like, oh, I think there's a way I can go with this, and I'm going to try this, and I'm going to, oh, wow, that's fun too, you know, whether it's just off the plate or in a preparation. Okay, what, what's the first cheese that you have for us?
5: Yeah, so the first cheese is a, um, a little, it's called Bijou. It's a little petite, uh, cr- Crottin style. Um, Kevin was mentioning Chev, So this is a goat's milk cheese. Mm-hmm. A little bloomy-rinded goat's milk cheese made by the folks in Vermont at Vermont Butter. Uh, and um, I, I like, usually I find that um, interesting that you brought up Chev because I find that goat's milk cheese is... There's something that you naturally want to pair with cider with them because of the mm-hmm. sort of acidity in them. I agree. Um, and they're, just, they're very lively. So, and they, no matter what the cider is, if it's sort of a, a heavier style or something with a little more, more sugar in it or something a little livelier, either one, you, like you, you can't lose.
3: Right. It's not a battle, it's a companionship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is a great breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> we got the, the chevre and mm-hmm. the. You, yeah. you have so many. Yeah. How do you keep
2: track of all your ciders? Cedra Dry, Easy Orchards.
3: How do I keep track? Yeah, I mean, do you you, every batch, is it it a different label, or do you have set labels? Well, I mean, aside from the color differentiation and the styles, um, if I'm not sure I could open it, But (laughs) then I know my child, you know. Um, Until the cider Dry was produced, I had put a vintage year on each of the French-style ciders, Technically, that's not allowable um, with cider in the trade by TTB rules, Tax and Trade Bureau rules. So, I don't do that anymore because the last thing I want to do is be running around to all the different places my cider is on a shelf and placing a different label on it. So, I stopped doing that. Probably a good decision. So, this finished as a dry cider. Prior to this, it had finished as a near-to-dry or semi-dry. This is the driest of the French styles. So, it was... Found its way as a cider dry on the label. But you can
2: say, "Is is this what year is this from?"
3: This is 2012 vintage. Vintage. So you can say that when you when you sell it or ship it, but you can't put on the label. Technically, yes. And the so and and I think it helps people understand the cider a little better. Unless they understand the different vintages, they won't know that this cider is drier than the 2011 that had the year on it. Uh, The 2013 which we haven't poured yet, is a semi-dry. Uh, it was an effort to um, finish the cider in this style with a little more residual sugar. And I was successful, uh, actually a little more successful than I had anticipated. There's a little more residual sugar there than I had originally intended. This is the kinetics of fermentation that I don't have full control of. But back to the cheese, because oh, okay. you've got more options for us. Well,
5: yeah, we have one other one. Um, this- Second cheese is a little cow's milk cheese um, from uh, Washington State. Mm. So this is more uh, just sort of a, a regional, somewhat regional pairing. Um, it's called piece? it's called Sleeping Beauty. It's from Cascadian Farms. It's uh, something that's like kind of got a little tanginess, a little sharpness, a little sweetness mm. in there, mm-hmm. um, all those things, and it's a little bit richer. So usually if you got some acid in your cider, mm-hmm. it's going to cut through that. And, oh
2: yeah, this is a breakfast. And, um, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is good.
5: I find usually it'll let Speaking with cheese in my mouth,
2: but here, put a little bit <laughs> of the richness. Um, yeah,
5: will um, bring. You're
2: good at talking
3: with cheese in your mouth. <laughs> have a I, my twelve-year-old daughter corrects me every time I talk with food in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Have a little mm-hmm. bit of the hawk house with this, with the because yeah. the hawk house being a North American style mm-hmm. cider, um, I interpret that to have more acidity, so mm-hmm. this is a little brighter, and so I think this is going to be a little more harmonious.
5: Yeah. Well, what it does is the bite that or the sip that I just had. As it brings
2: the fruit out a little more. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you know, um, so you're in the Willamette. Valley. I always call it Willamette. How do you pronounce it? Willamette. Willamette. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a lot of. I know there's a lot of Pinot Noir and wine, but are there any brewers mm. around there
3: that we oh, might know? Oh yeah, in Portland and in the mid valley, but um, Portland up and down along the coast in Oregon, we have some very um, inventive brewers. Uh, I, um, I'm fortunate. You know, to have Portland within about forty-five minutes to an hour from our home. So you're that close to Portland. Yes, so we are able to go and um, immerse ourselves outside of the Salem area um, into the larger metropolitan area of Portland, into the food and beverage scene. Uh, you find the brewing community to be very welcoming and and you know warm group of people to be around. The wine community is another circle of friendships that's more in the middle of the valley because that's where the vineyards are. Wineries stay closer to the land and brewers will be in larger metropolitan areas typically because they're not producing the raw product. But so, if we went out, went out to Portland then we could a short visit would be to Willamette Valley and where we you're making. We if, cider. if you wanted to put together a trip we could visit some great cideries, some great wineries, and some great breweries, and we would not go hungry. <laughs> One thing, a lot of times when we
2: eat cheese on the show, everyone stops talking. <laughs> it's a difficult
3: thing. I'll talk with my mouth full if I have to. We have to have little lights that flash when, you know,
2: stock.,
5: <laughs>
3: okay. Okay, why did, you, why did you pick the second cheese?
5: Second cheese uh, because of um, it's a little bit heavier in body um, the richness uh, like I said I feel like you, in, inside insider you always have some acid um, which will kind of cut through that fat and and I think what happened here and what I was hoping for is then it usually will bring the fruit forward it happens same thing happens with wine but um, mm-hmm. um, you know. It, 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 the apple, I think, uh, cider and cheese really are very, very best friends. Um, usually cheese will make have the effect on any beverage to make the beverage kind of come alive more, I find. I agree. Yeah. It, mm-hmm.
3: it, it has an effect on the texture in the mm-hmm. palate, first and foremost, in, in my experience. And, you know, it's a partnership. Inexperience. You know, the, one, one wakes up another.
2: Yes, the old days, yes. which for me was about 20 years ago, mm-hmm. some wine salesmen would say that the, the adage was you, you would sell with cheese, if you're tasting your product, and buy with apples. Oh, so wow. the, the idea is that if you're, you're, what you said is that the cheese makes everything taste better. Right. So I'm, whether I'm tasting a Pinot Noir or a beer, have a little cheese first, I'm like, wow, this tastes great. But if you have, if you have an apple, it's going to kind of create, maybe you're going to notice some defaults and things.
3: It, it cleanses the palate slightly. Or it refines the palate.
0: So Acute, so it,
2: acuteness. So you yeah. reps out there, you should start You should start handing out cheese when you taste it yeah, Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and don't put apples on your grilled cheese. And don't put but, apples on your grilled cheese.
5: <laughs>
2: but that's something about apples because, like, you know, tell us more about the ferment. I know you're on a ferment about it in, in this trip. Right. And I'm sure you guys got deep about techniques. But, you know, what is it about fer- fermenting apples that brings out so much flavor? You know, like the actual apple is, you said it's bittersweet. Yes. You know, it's it's, it's sweet, but it's bitter. Right. How, how do you get so much
3: flavor from fermentation? Fermentation is reducing the sugar load that's in the juice that we're starting with. So what we're seeing, what we're experiencing is essentially the apple with the sugars removed. What's left of that apple after you have removed the sugar? So if you take fruit, for instance, you take an apple or a pear, and you dry it, and you taste that dried fruit. You get a different sensation from the fresh fruit, of course, because the juice is absent, which really puts it all over the palate all at once. You're chewing on a little more, breaks and changes in the palate. Now you take the sugar out of that, and what's left? And if it's, you know, I find a lot of culinary um, apples, apples that are produced for fresh consumption, don't have the depth of tannins that give you something more when the sugars have been fermented away. So we're getting the benefit of the sugars creating alcohol. We like that aspect of it because it makes it stable and transposes um, on the palate differently and and gives us nice bubbles. (laughs) And then the next thing is what's left here is going to need to be substantial enough that it has experienced transposing properties in the food or just the simple beverage experience and that's where these traditional cider variety apples fan, you know have their opportunity in both the tradition and in modern cider they bring another element to it and a little diatribe here about apples and the importance of apples in our culture i mean if you went step back 150 or 200 years and, and sometimes we wonder why are there why is there such a large display of apples in the store why is an apple so important in our culture and if we went back 150 or 200 years ago and it was late February you would not find very much fresh fruit available it was dried fruit or it was cabbage or it was turnips and as far as fruit goes there wasn't much a dried prune perhaps but you usually could have if you had good storage in a cell you could still have apples to eat that were fresh they may not be orchard fresh from the tree harvest but they still were good apples the apple is something strong in our in our experience because it's been such a part of our experience for so many years the orchardist the farmer if he had five trees or half an acre or many acres needed ways to preserve fruit aside from just fresh because usually farmers overproduce. we do this over and over again so what's what's that person going to do he's going to have fresh fruit you can only sell so much He's going to make apple butter, he's going to make cider. Some of the cider is going to become vinegar either because of a mistake or because he needs vinegar because he's going to be preserving other fruits. You know, he's going to dry fruit. And then the cider that he can't drink all of or he's not as happy with, specifically in the French tradition, now it's like, what am I going to do with this cider? It's like, oh, we'll distill it and we'll throw it in these old barrels. And now we've got a distilled product that ages and, oh, that's not too bad either. (laughs) But the farmer didn't design to sit on a product for years to possibly sell it later because it's not economically viable however out of the desire to save everything that you know he's produced or she's produced they end up with these other innovations you know in that effort that's brilliant
2: man we're having such a great time talking about cider and cheese on beer sessions radio we'll be back in a few minutes
0: Tell you stories about my life, about what went wrong, what went right
3: But a southern girl on legal street is what I'm singing about tonight And I was listening to the Rolling Stones She was outside on her mobile phone I never thought I'd get it along, but I finally did And she called me by my last name So to her, I did the same It's just the kind of people we are, I don't know why and then she kissed me till the early dawn About two days later, she was gone I miss her every time I hear Let It Loose
2: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special cider show. We got Easy Orchards, we got United States of Cider having a great time. You're talking about, Kevin, you're talking about the history of of
3: apples and what we do with that fruit. Yes. Like make cider. (laughs) Like make cider. It's it's a traditional thing that has been part of the horticultural community for centuries from across different continents and so now we're at a modern stage of doing this and new innovations have been made but there's still a great opportunity in you know old traditional styles Um, we had a big hiatus here with prohibition and a consequence of prohibition was the removal of many acres of fruit that was used for cider baking after prohibition was over uh, you don't you know put the trees in the ground and have fruit come fall um it just it takes years and so the um cider production industry never really rebounded um immediately after prohibition so it's been a slow and so in that in that time of prohibition and then post prohibition uh the it just never really found its legs again and it's a it was a great loss and we're many decades behind um the continuing um heritage of cider making that Never had that stop in, in Europe and in other parts of the, of so what, the world. So what
2: was it like, like in the,
3: in the Pacific Northwest? Do you know about your region before Prohibition? Yeah, I know some of the history. And, and like I mentioned, our family's been there quite a while. Um, people in my family were not making cider. They were not in that trade. However, there were cider producers in Salem, where we're from. Um, some of it was being used to make vinegar. Some of it was, And I don't know of a label. However, I have seen a map from like 1905 that showed different businesses along the old trade route coming in and out of Salem towards the river. There's a cider producer listed there. Interesting. Uh, that's about all I found out about it. There were brewers in the city, um, very agricultural area. So hops were grown in the valley. There still are hops grown in the valley. The um, where, where we live, where our farm is, is essentially what some people call the end of the Oregon Trail. We're in, you know... The, the area of the country that people were trying to get to when they came out on the Oregon Trail, because it's very rich, fertile land. And um, so everything was, you know, the, the array of crops that were being produced 100 years ago, 150 years ago, was just fantastic. But, you know, things change, and Prohibition had a dramatic effect on cider. <laughs> so I'll tell you, a, a big change that's happened is that New York City has its first uh, cider
2: featured bar, Wasail, And you're one of many cider makers coming into town for dinners and tastings, and that's why we're doing all these great breakfast cider shows. So what are you doing tonight at Wasale and the products you have and all that stuff?
3: So at Wasale this evening, we will be um, partnering for a dinner that features five of our ciders paired with menu preparations that Wasale has constructed to partner with our ciders um, to experience both um, as we've talked about with cheese, you know, here's an opportunity, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited um, to see the interpretations, to taste, and also see because I find some preparations like, oh, it's just it's so attractive there on the plate, you know, <laughs> and and then put this together and um, find the you know the next you know experience in experience and tasting my cider with somebody else's creation, and and so this is available to people to you know, an audience to come and sit down, and I will speak at this event about each of the ciders, and then the chef will also speak about how they partnered their food preparation with the ciders. Wow, that's cool. What were you going to ask? I think I cut you off a few minutes. Well, I was
4: just going to ask uh, Kevin to tell us a little bit about what he just poured, because it's not an apple.
3: No, it's not. This is a... um, So I guess I'm never quite exhausted of wanting to try new things. So this is called Poix. The french word for pear what this is is a sparkling pear wine using the same methodology that i use for making ciders method ancestral the um, fruit that's used is all winter pears that we grow so it is fruit that is for the most part some several of the varieties are allowed to mature on the tree later some are the byproduct of um, our fresh pack side of the trade and the principal varieties are Bosque pear, Pharrell pear, and then another very important variety is Camise pear.
4: So these are all dessert fruits, conventionally, or how it, we would know them.
3: Yes. Right? So Pairs. none of these fruit really contain large acid structures or really, you know, prominent tannin structures. So it was kind of a challenge to see if this was something that would work, and. Fortunately, it did work. There is enough um, tannin structure in the Pharrell pear, and allowing the fruit to mature a little more gave me the opportunity to bring out the aromatic characteristics and then finishing it near to dry. So, we're not, we don't have, there's no Bartlett pear in this, so there's none of the, the summary effect that you find in some parries. Um It's definitely more, you know, it, it lends itself a relationship to, to wine in the body and structure of it. However, it does have that that nice and bubbly texture as well.
2: Kevin, is is there actually a peri tree? Oh, been, yes. yes. There's a variety called Perry.
3: Well, there's not a specific variety. There is a group of pears called peris. Um, and they I grow some. They're young trees. I haven't harvested a crop of any consequence yet. When but, do you think you might? Um, this year I'll get a few fruit yeah. more. It takes longer to get pears in production than apples. Uh, within another two years, I should have... a substantial enough quantity of fruit to use it in the production and then i will do a trial batch because i'm happy with what happened with the poif so i don't want to like upset that how its body and construction is but i will be experimenting with this very large tannin structure and and in peri pears these were in, these are english varieties and there's some argument at times about are the English varieties or are they French. You can go from village to village in some parts of France and let's say it's called this variety here in the next village. It's <laughs> called this variety. It's the same fruit. You're almost absolutely sure it's just over the many centuries. Somebody gave it a different name. How much of that fruit came from France to England that has a French? I mean an English name is compared to French. We can arm wrestle about it as much as we want. There's a lot of relationships between some of the fruit varieties in the pericast, you know, category between France and England. But then there's method and technique of production as well. But typically, um, peri pears, um, traditional s- fruit used for fermentation, is very large tannin. And in fact, some of the expressions I've heard is it's like putting steel wool in your mouth when you bite into one. It's just like... That
5: sounds like fun.
3: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to balance and blend. There are some some varieties as a single varietal would be just a very, very shocking, you know, cider to make, you know. But, however, you can bring that to, you know, in a composition to something to get you that larger tannin structure. So that's one of my next... um, challenges yeah to blend and create and they have interesting names some of these varieties Um, one that i found very uh, well the barland is a variety that i'm working with blank knee red gin which is good name for a pair, I guess. One that I had a lot of fun with was, um, it's called Butt, B-U-T-T. And I was having some of these trees I s- supplied the scion wood. They were being grown at a commercial nursery, and, and they had a very hard time labeling those trees with that name. They just didn't think it was appropriate. And it came back spelled, you know, B-O-D-T, you know, all sorts of different things. It was just like, they just weren't going to get it that way. It just seemed awkward to them, so... Anyway, um you'll find pear pears have interesting names. Very interesting names.
5: Well, apples do too.
3: Yeah, some do. Yeah, like yeah. brown snout.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I
3: mean, who's going to go and ask for Cancer. brown snout? <laughs> um. So what are some other ones that are really weird? Oh, gosh. And most of them are in the um, English vernacular. Um, there's, And I don't grow English apples except for Yarlington Mill, which is a nice name. Um, so I can't really go down that track but real quickly. But they get quickly. very
4: eccentric.
3: Work. We could look in this book here, and you could find them real quick. <laughs> but they do become eccentric, and you wonder. It's like, you know, was it a good day or a bad day for that farmer? I don't know. <laughs> but he
2: already had a lot of cider. <laughs> Have you discovered a a lot of uh, new cider
3: mutations of trees in in your orchards over the years? No, I I haven't been fortunate to have a a chance seedling of a variety that comes out that I can name, find a good name, and um, say that's a variety that would work well. Uh, That's not very common. Uh, there are a number of apples. Say, for instance, Golden Delicious was a chance seedling you know, from a long time ago. There are apple varieties that you know, were a chance seedling being something that came up in the orchard from seed or from whatever. And it's like, wow, that's a whole different apple than the rest of the orchard here. Usually a seed propagation doesn't yield fruit that we're very happy with. Uh, an apple won't. You can take the seeds from an apple, plant it the ground. It's not going to produce the same apple. That's why we use other methods of propagation like grafting and budding using scion wood from a specific cultivar. So, so you're doing an, like orchard management. You're not just like letting something come out of a seed and see what it's going to be. It, you, you, you could plant all the seeds from a single apple and every fruit would be different and most of them are not going to be palatable.
2: Yeah. So it's not, you can't just go into the woods
3: and, and gather up any apple and just make a cider and it's going to be good. Uh, it might be, however, you won't find a lot of apples in the or- in the in the woods because the deer have eaten them off. Um, the um, and and I haven't confirmed this, but for instance, John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, they talked to him going around and throwing apple seeds out to grow. And I don't know if he did that or if he planted, you know, rootstocks he would found. It's it's likely that he did this. It's also likely that people came along and grafted onto those trees the varieties they wanted to grow, because. Um, yeah. What do they know about John Chapman? I mean,
2: if they don't, it's, it's, it's myth, but is, was he really? Yeah, it's not he, myth. No,
4: he was a real guy. Yeah. He was mm-hmm. kind of an itinerant, eccentric nurseryman who exactly. pushed out to the frontier. So when people were settling and needed to start an orchard,
3: he had some fruit going. Fruit or a source to graft onto, you know, or, you know, it's just, eccentrics so give us great opportunity. Absolutely. You know, and um, some people keep pushing out there. He was one of them. what well, mm-hmm. you were going to say something
2: about him too, because it's worth talking. about. We've never really talked uh, about John. No, I was saying,
5: no, he was very much a real person, and uh, yeah, he's credited with uh, getting apples through, all throughout America. Uh, you know, at the time though, it was mostly for cider. It wasn't mm-hmm. so much for dessert or culinary fruit. It was for cider because people were going out into those. Kind of some rough lands there. They needed a drink. <laughs> and since, well, and
4: since it took years for mm-hmm. for a, a tree to produce fruit, he had mm-hmm. already had the trees started so that you had something. You didn't have to wait five more years for a fruit-bearing right. tree right. that you planted on your own. So you
2: think that he was
3: actually planting trees and not just putting seeds in He could have been doing both. Uh, you could, you know, propagate trees, you know, and, and have, like, one-year-olds that you pack around 50, 60 at a time and easily stick them in out there, and they're going to probably survive better than throwing seeds in the ground.
4: There's a great book by William Kerrigan on Johnny Appleseed. We'll have to bring that in next time. I That's what I'm Some of these Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and it goes again to how important was the apple in, in early, you know, post-colonial North America.
4: Absolutely. Well, and I think he was also, Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman, was very religious. He was a Swede Borgian, right. so there was a certain... Religious aspect to his nurturing of nature right. that he was pursuing as he right. went to the frontiers.
2: Yeah, well, I do like books, and that's a lot of times the conversation. We, we kind of get to things that you might think is you know obvious to people. But for most of my listeners, I don't really know the story of him. And talking about another great book, um, you guys brought in uh, World's Best Siders by Pete Brown and Bill Bradshaw. And uh, Kevin, tell us, so you're, you're, you're featured prominently in this book. Tell us about the experience of, uh, you know, when these guys interviewed you,
3: because they have a real great feature on you. I was very fortunate to be reviewed very well in this book. came out several years ago. It was a wonderful experience. I hadn't met either person. And another cider maker in the trade said, these um, book writer and photographer from the U.K. are going to be visiting. Um, can they stop by the orchard? And I said, well, it is October, and we are busy. So I'll try to find the time for them, and um, they stopped by, and um, we engaged, and so we took a walk into the orchard, and then we came back and tried some ciders, and um, it was just a
2: very comfortable... It says, apples are like your kids, you don't have to remember their names, you know who they are and when they're going to be troublesome. (laughs) You probably
3: don't even remember saying that. Uh,
5: How are apples troublesome?
3: well you've got climatic conditions you've got tree health you know Mm -hmm. each tree is going to be they're similar yes but Mm -hmm. one may be healthier than the other or one's got a branch that's going right into the path that you're trying to drive through with the tractor and you know you, you notice you know these little nuanced things about trees and the orchard and the gopher that moves into the orchard you know it's you know so it's see there's there's a certain amount of truth in that yes definitely but it was a wonderful experience. They're both very interested in, in cider. Bill's quite Bill Bradshaw is quite into cider, the UK cider experience. He's very knowledgeable. He's since this book released another book about farmhouse ciders. And um, so they came in with knowledge about cider that we were absent of here because it never stopped there. Um, Pete has a long history in writing about beer. And yeah, he Brown. found yeah, he read stuff a lot, yeah. yeah, and he found another breath of fresh air doing cider, and um they produced a book that's very comprehensive of the world of cider, as it is talked about we talked about English, German, French, you know, the global Best cider hilarious. situation, yeah, yeah, it's really wonderful
2: before we wrap up uh, um Gay and Kate, would you each ask one one final question? Cause I know you guys are like deep cider people,
4: well, I'm just curious. Is there any fruit that you haven't put in your ciders yet that you're curious to explore? Any new apples that you want to bring into your cider blends?
3: The not so much in apples at the moment.
4: Quince, perhaps?
3: Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it's always a possibility, but I don't grow quince, so I'm I grow what I ferment. Uh, no, the next adventure will be with the, the peri pears I'm growing when they begin to yield. That's that's where the next. Um, opportunity comes it's A new frontier for <laughs> yeah exactly
5: what about because earlier you mentioned there are a lot of hops grown in your region yes grown. a lot of people are now hopping ciders yes have you experimented with that or will you be or?
3: i i i have not and yeah. i very likely will not mm-hmm. i am i guess what you could call an orchard-based cider producer so, I, you know, I could be called a traditionalist, but I prefer to say an orchard-based. It's what I'm growing, I don't grow hops, and I'm very interested in the fruit alone. So if I'm speaking to people in the wine community, and if I even suggested putting something other than a Pinot Noir in their Pinot Noir bottle, they would think I was cuckoo, Absolutely. you know? So this is kind of the way, because I do come from a wine philosophy about cider. So I like to keep it simpler that way, because I see a realization of the fruit.
2: One thing I love is that you just say you just have only apples in your, in your bottle. Yes. And that's we're, we're learning a lot doing these shows. And I want to thank uh, Gay and Kay from United States of Cider for helping put the show together. Kevin from Easy Orchards, thanks for coming to New York City. You're welcome. We're be doing a lot more of these shows. And thanks to our sponsors, Mini Beer Distributors, or makers of fine, sellers of fine ales and ciders. And uh, I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers and our engineer, Jack Ginsley. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio.